0: to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. Listen in as co-hosts Ted Stank and Tom Goldsby take a leap onto the ships of supply chain, crowd surf into the long lines of meeting holiday demand, and wade into the depths of warehouse inventory buildup. They'll cover all the relevant and current topics blocking the canal of your minds and discuss industry issues that keep you up at night. If you enjoyed the show, download and subscribe to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, let's begin our show, where you'll hear what you'd least expect from the people you want to hear it from the most. Our co-hosts, Ted and Tom.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. I'm here with my good friend, Tom Goldsby. We're going to talk to you today about a couple of different things happening in the world. We'll talk about some current events that impact supply chain management, we're going to go on to our big story, which is related to COVID in the last couple of years and geopolitics given the Russian-Ukraine war, and talk about how we see that potentially impacting a new world order and what that means for supply chain managers. And we'll bring in our good friend, Dr. Andreas Sorty, former global director of procurement for Mondelez, and now on our faculty for the last couple of years, our executive director of our EMBA program as well to add his insights on where he sees us going from a global procurement and sourcing perspective, and also talk some about his passion on supplier equity and diversity. So before we get to that, let's talk about some things that are going on right now that are hot button issues for all of us in supply chain management. Tom, what kind of things do you have teed up?
2: Yeah, thanks, Ted. Let's start with COVID. You know, we're kind of in between things here in the United States. And it feels good to relax a little bit after uh, darn near two years of really being guarded and business having to be very guarded. But meanwhile in China, they're dealing with Omicron. It's hot and heavy over there right now and it's upending Chinese manufacturing and supply chains. As you probably know, they've implemented this zero tolerance policy that's been in place since the very beginning of the pandemic. And we all witnessed it a few months back during the winter Olympics, right? As soon as an athlete sniffled, they got put away and sequestered until they could come out of hiding, basically. And Ted, I'm kind of interested in your perspective on this zero tolerance policy. I mean, here we are in 2022 and we've got vaccines and we kind of understand how this virus transmits. Granted, there are new variants that come along from time to time, but My sense is that in 2022, we can still maintain some semblance of productivity. This idea of trying to squash it uh, when there's any outbreak and we see what the Chinese are doing. I mean, Shanghai is apparently uh, one side of the city is completely shut down and the other side is going to get shut down later this week. I just don't know how practical that is. What, What are some of your
1: thoughts? So, Tom, I think you know that I'm not an epidemiologist, right? But I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express a couple of times. So I guess I could talk to this topic. You know, my impression is the countries that tried to go completely zero tolerance were successful for a certain period of time. But the world is such, again, foreshadowing our next topic, right? The world is such as that you can't shut the world out. So even places like New Zealand, which are relatively geographically remote, have seen some trouble lately because they didn't really have the kind of immunities that countries that opened up early on and saw lots of infections but potentially got to herd immunity are impacting them now. Hong Kong, similar scenario. China is responding, though. They're not reacting the way they did in the early days of COVID. They're doing, as you suggested, these rolling lockdowns where they're going to literally different neighborhoods at a time, locking down. Also, what we saw in Shenzhen was that as opposed to the 14 day lockdowns, they only did, I believe, a five or seven day lockdown in Shenzhen. So hopefully not as much of an impact as we saw early on, but still an impact. Reports now are you can't get air cargo out of Shanghai. You can't get containers out of Shanghai. A lot of companies are shifting freight down to Ningbo. Manufacturing facilities are closing. So we're going to see the same kind of backups and backlogs that we saw earlier. And what does that mean over on this side of the pond uh, of the Pacific? You know, we're seeing lows in L.A. Long Beach. I believe we're at less than 30 ships there right now. But there are ships being loaded or waiting to be loaded over across the Pacific that potentially could cause us to have similar buildups that we had last summer. So long answer, Tom. Um, I don't know. You know, Europe is going through in some countries uh, an upswing in infection cases due to the BA2 variant of Omicron. The United States, we are no longer decreasing in infections, but we seem to have plateaued. So it will be very interesting to see how we respond. But I do think we are beyond the time of any kind of universal shutdown and rather potentially maybe just go to individual locations that might have to increase protections like mask wearing and things like that.
2: Well, you know, again, I I sense that we're in a very different place than we were in 2020 and 2021 for that matter. And I think news just came out today that a second booster has been approved. Yeah, you know, we do have line of defenses out there that uh, we were not available previously. I think we just need to leverage them. But our friends over at CSCMP put out the Logistics Manager Index. And I thought some pretty interesting data had come out of that that's related to this topic, which is to suggest that inventories are starting to build up here in the United States. So as you mentioned, the backlog of ships coming in, maybe they're arriving in spades to some extent, maybe maybe some degree of overordering the bullwhip effect that we talk about routinely in our classes. The IS ratio, inventory to sales ratio, kind of told a little different story. It was up to 1.17 in December, which explains why Santa was by and large able to deliver on those holiday gift giving commitments. But it did drop down to 1.13 in January. I'm kind of anxious to see what the February numbers look like. Uh, We're hearing that inventory is overrunning a lot of warehouses out there. Warehouse capacity is getting really tight. Uh, Very few vacancies out there to be had. So kind of some interesting things going on. Also, I think we're going to touch on maybe what's going on with the domestic trucking market a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, you know, there are some signs in the economy and it's so hard to filter out the signals that you're seeing from... All these trends that came out of COVID and then all of a sudden the shock of the Russian-Ukraine war and what things are happening there, particularly in the area of pricing and inflation and deflation, things like that. There were some indicators prior to the Russian-Ukraine war breaking out that perhaps we were starting to come down the backside of this inflationary trend and seeing prices starting to to stabilize and come down. Of course, we've all seen this run up now in fuel costs in particular and dangers about what might happen with food costs due to wheat and corn on the global market. So those are really difficult to predict (laughs) because of this new shock that we've had that's now a month old. We are seeing some indications that trucking prices are coming down That's probably a supply and demand issue, but now we stick fuel for surcharges on top of that. I would say right now, I'd be really hesitant to say that we're going to see any kind of deflation in trucking prices because of what's happening with fuel.
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, even if we're in a little bit of a lull, which at this time of the year, kind of early spring, we are in something of a shipping lull in the domestic market. But you're right. I mean, with fuel prices up and still trying to attract those drivers and get ready for a busy summer season. It's no time to fall asleep at the wheel, if you will. But hey, I I do know that we want to take on a really big issue here. Of course, you mentioned the ongoing story about a month into this Russian-Ukraine war. And we've been throwing around the term, hearing this term, a new world order. That certainly has major ramifications on our daily lives, on work, and yes, on our supply chains. both near and long-term implications out there. And, of course, everything's just kind of shifting almost moment by moment. I was listening to an interview featuring Richard Haass, the president on Council of Foreign Relations, longtime diplomat, who said that this is the most pivotal time since the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago. Ted, I know you've been reading up and studying and having conversations. I'm just curious about what your sense of the new world order might look like and what you think it could uh, do with our supply chains.
1: You know, we're in arguably from the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989 and therefore the quote unquote end of the Cold War, where we really have gone to a full global economy where all the countries of the world, with the exceptions of a unique few, were engaged in the international financial markets and international trade with the dollar pegging a lot of reserve currency That could potentially be changing today, and it all really depends, I think, on how China reacts to what's happening in the world right now. Um, Clearly, all the Western countries have stacked up on the side of Ukraine and have tried to force Russia into kind of a pariah scenario, locking down their financial reserves and stopping trade, etc. But China has been hedging on that, and I think not coincidentally, a week or so ago, also started... Pushing the notion of the yuan as an alternative reserve currency, which could potentially set the table for a, I don't know, a post normal. Cold War, where there's certain countries that are stacked with China. Um, interestingly, India has also been very reserved in terms of commenting on the Russian-Ukraine situation and potentially engage in that alternative universe. Some countries in the Western world, like Brazil, may also. And so what would that mean in terms of global trade and global sourcing and locations of manufacturing? We all are so familiar with the fact that China remains one of the biggest source of much manufactured product, as well as a lot of commodities, what would that mean if we had essentially a new Cold War where we weren't trading across these barriers? And I think a lot of companies right now are starting to look at their own global supply chains to say, do we need to go to a more regional format where we have Sources of raw materials and subcomponents located in different regional areas to try to protect ourselves from the disruptions that might occur if we had that kind of a new world order emerge.
2: Well, it's interesting. You've been talking about this notion of regionalized supply chains for quite some time. I think we were instrumental in putting together that EPIC report. What was it about 2015 that suggested that this could be the way of the future and maybe there weren't the Yeah, there wasn't the impetus at the time to really uh, force companies to entertain that. But perhaps we are at that point.
1: Yeah, you know, this was back. Our first epic book came out in 2014. And this was at the time when Thomas Friedman, famous journalist from New York Times and The New Yorker, came out with this. The world is flat. And, you know, we were going into this world where there was not going to be as many differences financially or intellectually across markets. But there's a gentleman named Penkaj Gemawat who had been at, I think, Instituto de Impresa in Europe and is now at Harvard, who had a differing perspective to the world is flat. He said the world still was considerably non-flat and that he was the one who put out that notion of supply and demand pods. And our research supported that Gemawatt perspective, that companies would be well advised to look at major demand centers and creating supply chains close geographically to those demand centers to be able to manage total costs and be able to respond quickly to market changes. Not a lot of people listened to us in 2014, but I wonder if uh, we were ahead of our time and that we're starting to look at a world that does that now. So speaking of this topic, I mentioned that we're going to bring in our good friend, Dr. Andrea Sorti. Andrea spent a career working in global procurement with Mondelez International. He has been with us for a couple of years as one of our faculty members with a real focus and expertise in global procurement and sourcing, leads our executive MBA program, participates in our advanced supply chain collaborative research and leads one of our big projects in that. And so we thought this would be a great time for Andrea to join us at the table and share his insights. Andrea, welcome. Great to have you on board.
3: Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation.
1: So what's your perspective on this whole thing? I might just be in a blowhard professor talking about a new world order and things are just going to go back the way they were. Or do you see some changes?
3: I would say you were pretty out of time in 2014, 2015, when you said that the world is getting to some different setting. I think we spent too much time in getting fixated on globalization and global sourcing and unidirectional in the way we would deliver value to, to companies. Definitely, the two topics you were discussing about COVID and then the uh, the war in Ukraine is setting out a, a different, different network, a different uh, uh, resource commodity network availability. I mean, you mentioned wheat and corn being in, in the center of uh, of the issues for Ukraine on top of natural gas. I was looking this morning, the the wheat price in uh, in a matter of a month has been raising up a 30% and then coming some, somehow down. So there are two effects in there that to me are critical. One is uh, being able to cope with the supply, so the quantity. And the other thing is being able to predict that variability, ups and downs of pricing, which is very difficult to pass and justify to consumers. So I think we we need to go. We need to diversify our supply base in a matter of uh, being able to secure supply, secure quantity, but enable to flat down those variability in commodities as much as we can. The other interesting thing I always use the uh, that example. You know, I'm coming from a food industry where the one of the biggest commodity was uh, cocoa. Now. It's great talking about regional sourcing, but there's not that many regions in the world that you can grow cocoa beans. I mean, I would love to have cocoa beans in my backyard here in Tennessee. So I think there are certain limits of what you can do. And uh, and then it becomes uh, a more preemptive sourcing approach, sourcing strategies that I think we have underplayed for quite a long time in the past to the benefit of cost and, another, and simplification. But at the end, I think what we have been learning over the past two years is that risk management is profit. It's just a different way to translate profit. And that's where the equation needs to uh, to go.
1: Yeah. Uh, Andrea, have you seen, I mean, a lot of people will challenge me on this when I talk about this topic. They'll challenge me to say, we hear about this talk all the time, but can you point to any significant new manufacturing facilities opening in, say, Western Europe or in the United States to support this notion of increased regionalization? Do you have any concrete examples of that? I have seen concrete examples, and not necessarily only in the recent couple of years,
3: but even before of uh partnership between buyers and suppliers that were building wall-to-wall solutions in uh, western countries. And that's a different approach to profit. You're not going to go to low-cost country uh, based on uh, labor arbitrage or other metrics like those, but you are looking to lean and efficiency and shortage of supplies as an element to drive that profit and that benefit. And I would argue that we're gonna see more and more uh, of that. Now, how fast that is gonna grow, I think it's all relative to how quick and how bold uh, Western countries and particularly the U.S. and Europe are gonna be in investing in new infrastructure, in um, greener infrastructure, in new energy sources. And I was having a conversation this morning with one of our colleagues exactly on this one, and. I think the U.S. has an opportunity to become competitive advantage to other uh, new economies that are out there. You mentioned a couple before, China and Southeast Asia. I think the competitive advantage is going to be played on how those infrastructure and that environmental policy is going to go faster and and better. I mean, Europe has a significant take on environmental policies, and they're going to be looking for sourcing from countries where that environmental policy is stringent and, and, and developed.
2: I'm glad you brought up the infrastructure, right? I mean, it occurs to me that we've got this incredible opportunity to not only make up time and yes, you know, patch the potholes and that sort of thing, but to really try to make a bold step into the 21st century. And if, if we can do that strategically as a nation, it's going to be that skeleton upon which we can, we can hang a lot more manufacturing distribution capabilities for sure. As we were introducing you, we failed to point out that you are a PhD food scientist, and we're thrilled to have that different perspective that you bring to the table, as well as your extensive industry experience with the likes of Mondelez and and other food giants that you've worked with. Yeah, I was just wondering if you might talk to us, as Ted pointed out, you've been with us now a couple of years, and you're going back to research and teaching and sharing new knowledge. What sort of topics are you undertaking? Uh, Ted mentioned the supplier diversity and equity work that you're doing. Maybe you can share a little bit about uh, the research you've undertaken.
3: Yeah, gosh, that introduction, Tom, was great. I mean, PhD in food science sounds great, right?
1: Yes, to me, Andrea, that you should be able to grow cocoa in your backyard. <laughs>
3: yeah, I should, I should probably try so I am doing that. You never know. So I'm working on a couple of projects which are very interesting that I never had the chance before to deep dive so much, but are so fulfilling. Both are in the sustainability space, one more environmentally oriented and the role, the capabilities and competence that procurement organization need to develop to really drive that agenda. And the other ones is more on the social aspect. So, about uh, economic inclusion and supply diversity, how we can drive benefit and value both for organization and the society if we expand our supplier base, including supplier less access to resources and, uh, and opportunity. And therefore, you grow that wealth across society. And it's somehow you you can create more consumers that are going to be liking your brand. So that's the kind of a principle. So it sounds like a win-win solution that is it's really fulfilling. And I would say that aspect to link back to Ted's point before about the supply risk and all this new regionalization. Supply diversity represents an opportunity to expand that supplier base to regionalize more that supplier base. So. It doesn't become any longer as a nice to have, but in this new sourcing scenario, it's becoming more of a needed solution and an opportunity for organization to de their supply chain and control a little bit better that commodity volatility.
2: As you're pointing out, it's not just a a good idea to help others and and, and raise others up, but you're saying it's also an important resiliency play, right? Uh, Absolutely. maybe create new and varied sources of supply and create opportunity. And you say there's also some branding implications associated
3: with it. It is some landing application. And look, I've been in the industry, the one that over the years shrink down supplier base. That was one of the main mantra we, we go through, but there was because there was a lot of administrative works to manage a lot of suppliers. Nowadays, everything is automated. Automation is cheaper, more affordable, and there's a plenty of solution there, So. That excuse is not out there any longer, but the other priority is the risking your supply chain. It's great to see those
2: barriers to entry coming down. Totally. Um, yeah.
1: Hey, Andrea, one of the things that we've talked about for a long time that has hampered the ability to have more innovative and alternative sources of supply, both geographically and from an equity and inclusion standpoint, has been the narrow focus on unit cost and how difficult it is to establish what those additional costs are, particularly cost avoidance type things like risk. Do you think that the last two years and the crises we've been through the last two years have helped quantify and make more objective the costs associated with disruptions and not having resilience so that we might be able to now build more holistic cost models to justify some of these alternative solutions?
3: Uh, I'm certain about that. I mean, the way CFOs are approaching procurements at targets is going to be much more different. They're going to be looking at value, at at the end. Look, at the end of the day, what matters is the last number at the bottom of the page in the PL and earning per share to your shareholders. So as long as you can defend that, and you can anticipate any variability, any potential fluctuation of that, that's what's the most important. And procurement today is sitting as the entire supply chain in a fantastic place to provide that visibility and and that control. So yeah, definitely there's a different take. I'm not going to say that Cost is not important any longer. Price is not going to be in the focus. That's still going to be, but there are many more priorities and elements that procurement organization are going to be able to play and put on the table to validate that, that element. Inflation is one. So if you can avoid that inflation impact, well, I don't think it's going to be any CFO at the moment going to turn that back.
1: Yeah. It just seems to me that in a very visceral and graphic way, the parts of the organization outside of the supply chain have been made aware of the costs of not having resilience over the last two years. And so it might be easier for us to sell that more total cost perspective.
3: Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I remember back in the days, the pushback on uh, business continuity plans implementation was the hourly cost. And yeah, when, whenever this is a risk, it's going to materialize. I think we have two years of history now to quantify
2: that impact. I think your research is really cool and that it underscores the criticality of procurement, right? I mean, you set the tone for not only cost of through cost of goods sold, you set the tone for quality, but you're also by virtue of the spend and very substantial spend that, that you all control very significant share of sales. You're kind of setting the tone for issues like sustainability and, and transparency as well, which, uh, I, I think, are going to be ongoing themes that we're going to see in business and uh, the capabilities to be able to reach into that supply base and you know, to be proud, in fact, of uh, those with which we work. I often share with my students that we need our supply chains to not only be productive, agile, innovative, but we also need to, to protect the reputation of the business. And I think so much of that is controlled through sourcing efforts.
3: Totally. And the other elements into that equation, Tom, is about innovation. I mean, if you think about that, some of those resources that you can't, you know, grow in your backyard, innovation and product design can help to, you know, somehow mitigate those risks of constrained uh, sourcing scenarios. So that's another way a procurement supply chain can operate to ensure that continuity of uh, our supply.
1: You know, we talked about how this regionalization of supply chains might have been ahead of its time 10 years ago. There's been a lot of talk over the years about the triple bottom line as well. And perhaps that was ahead of its time. And we are finally reaching a point where companies recognize the importance of that triple bottom line. So not only economic, but environmental and equity to society as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you if you look some of the major asset management companies, they are ranking companies based on their ESG risk and they're measuring that as are you committing on something? Are you delivering on that something? If you're yes, great. If not, it's a lack of trust in your company and that's a risk for investors. So, I think the equation is pretty straightforward and it's it's it start pushing to some significant changes in organizations.
1: You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention we talked about our EPIC scale, economic, political, infrastructure and business competencies that's been out for eight plus years now. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Andrea is working on some additions to the EPIC scale that are tracking some of these supplier equity and diversity and ESG type issues. So stand by for that. We'll be releasing some of that in the near future.
2: It's so cool to have you with us, Andrea. I can still recall when we we sent a research team up to uh, Mondelez offices in Chicago, and you were on staff at Mondelez. We were collaborating on a piece of research, and it was Ted who said, you know what? We might be able to make a, a grab for Andrea, and sure enough, here you are two years later, part of our organization and lending so much richness to what we do. I know that we're getting close to the end of time, but I am thinking there's an opportunity here for us just to touch on what it's been like for you to make the transition back to academics. I think a lot of folks, as they have incredible careers out there and they get a sense that they want to give back or do something different and, uh, hey, give you a lot of credit. Uh, you were you're kind of more mid-career, but certainly rising fast and decided to get back on the academic track. What's it been like for you?
3: It's been a bit of a challenge at the beginning, don't get me wrong. I mean, there wasn't a, a walk in the park, but I think it's rewarding the way my priority in the business has always been my team and people. But if we look that in, the, in academia, I did a count the other day, I'm touching at least 300 people every single year, and I'm leaving a little bit of some seed in every in every one of them. So that's a huge impact on the huge legacy that you're leaving every year. So if your leadership is about leaving a legacy and impact on people, well, that's a job that you you should go to 300 every year is probably 10 years in a business
2: okay well we're so glad that you took us up on the offer and uh, again you're enriching the education of our students you're also contributed immensely to the research and outreach that we undertake at you it's just great to have you on our team.
3: The only things I would add Tom to that, if you ever been in a meeting with Ted and he's gonna sit you on a couch, uh, separately with a coffee, watch out because then a job offer is gonna come out of
1: that. Yeah, that research meeting quickly turned into me recruiting Andrea meeting for so that, that was that was well spent time. Andreas, so good to have you with us here at UT. Also great to have you with us here on this podcast. We'd love to have you come back in the near future.
3: Thank you very much for having me. That was fun.
1: Well, everybody, this is going to wrap for, uh, for this particular episode. As always, please send us your questions, comments, suggestions for future podcast topics to gsci at utk.edu. That's gsci at utk.edu. Thanks a lot for being with us. I will say adieu to you right now. Thomas, you have any closing comments? No,
2: I think we covered a lot of ground today, and I'm sure that uh, the world's going to continue evolving rapidly, and uh, we'll be there to try to.
1: Reminds me of that old Saturday Night Live skit. It's always something, Roseanne, Rosanna Adana.
0: Thanks for listening to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. If you like what you heard, Don't forget to subscribe via your favorite listening platform, such as iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Leave or reply in our show notes at gscipodcast.com or email your questions to gsci at utk.edu. Join us next time in our pursuit to prove that supply chain management is more fun than you think.